It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the New European podcast with me, Steve Anglesey, the editor of the New European as I record this, Britain's nurses are on a nationwide strike for the first time in the 106-year history of the Royal College of Nursing. If only there was a big pool of money that we'd save from somewhere that we could use to pay the nurses, you know, maybe the equivalent of £350 million a week, something like that. Joining me today to assess the damage from another year of Brexit, the economics expert and new European columnist, John T. Bloom. And then, with the help of the new Europeans, Eleanor Longman-Rood and Matt Withers, I'll be putting more pompous politicians into our Hall of Shame. Another brilliant print edition of the New European is available now. It's got Meghan and Harry on the cover, ironically, of course. Meanwhile, our website and newsletters are full of stories that take you into the heart of European politics and culture. If you want more of all of that, and why the hell shouldn't you? There's no better way to support what we do at The New European than by subscribing. The good news is that podcast listeners can get a year's digital subscription for just £1 a week or a year's subscription to TNE's print and digital package for £2 a week. You can do that by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. If you subscribe to our print and digital package for £2 a week, you get unlimited digital access, plus our award-winning newspaper is delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer, subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. So, Ellie and Matt joining us shortly for the Hall of Shame, but first, it's a pleasure to welcome back to the podcast the new Europeans, John T. Bloom, a former BBC Economics and Europe editor. John T. watches the financial effects of Brexit for us every week. And in our latest issue, you can read his review of the damage that not being in the EU has caused to our economy over the course of this year. John E, welcome back to the podcast. Always great to have you. Um, it has, as we'll come on to in a minute, been a terrible year for people who believe in Brexit. But in the last few days, some of those people seem to have a bit of a spring in their step because of events in Brussels. Uh, and just for anyone who has missed this or not familiar with the details, there have been uh, raids on 19 homes and offices, £1.3 million have been seized, four people have been charged with corruption. It's a lobbying scandal involving 
members of the European Parliament apparently being paid to lobby for Qatar. And one of those people uh, charged uh, Eva Kiley, the, the Greek MEP, stripped of her position as a vice president of the EU Parliament. Uh, does does what's happened mean that you and I have been wrong all along about the EU and wrong about Brexit? And, and should we not want to rejoin an organisation that's so easily corrupted? Uh, well, I mean, it is um, it is um, a shocking scandal, but it's not the first in the EU. Um I can remember when the whole commission had to um, resign and, and be reappointed. And we always, as Brits, tend to be rather patronising about this, as if there's no corruption in the UK. Uh, well, we know there's a fair amount of corruption. We know that an awful lot of people seem to get into the House of Lords just by throwing cash at political parties. Uh, we've got an on-running scandal with PPE. Uh, we have um, ministers and uh, MPs earning a small fortune on the side what is basically inside information but this is just the british way of doing business it's not nothing's illegal or or shocking about it um yes i think there is a bigger problem with corruption in uh continental uh some parts of continental europe but uh, we shouldn't be surprised by that but these people were caught i mean the belgian police came knocking on their door and and um they're facing very serious allegations there are quite a few ppe scandals in this country where no one's even being investigated so i don't think we should be too self-righteous about it and none, none of the corruption that's gone on would any in any way have affected our membership uh, benefits from the EU. We got benefits from being part of the single market, from the Horizon Science Programme, from the Customs Union, from uh, uh, cooperation on crime and data and space research and everything. And none of these were affected by corruption. Uh, none of these would have been affected by this scandal at all. So that you know, you know, <laughs> trying to say. We, we, well, we were right not to have anything to do with the people. Look, you know, 1% of them seem to be corrupt when actually we were benefiting hugely and it's cost us a huge amount of our economic wealth to leave. Doesn't sound like a very good argument to me. Yes. I mean, it has been a bad year for those who believe in Brexit. I mean, do you want to take us through some of the, the highlights and lowlights? I, I, I mean, I, I guess it. we could start at January the 1st, couldn't we? Because... That was the, the day after a transition period when we saw the full introduction of border controls with the EU. It didn't, that didn't go well, did it? Um, not only did it not go well, but you're wrong. We didn't see the full introduction. No, no, of course. Qu quite a few of them have been delayed. Yes. In, fact, in fact, the one on uh, food standards um, was Jacob Rees-Mogg, the arch-Brexiteer, travelled to Dover in April to say it would be madness to introduce it because it would force up food prices in the middle of a, a sharp increase in inflation and would cost companies a billion a year, which I didn't see on the side of a bus anywhere. Um, it's the, the, it, but you're right, just the imposition of the border controls that we have had has had a shocking effect. And we are, we are at the end of the year after all the Brexiteers saying, no, it's COVID, no, it's something else. Uh, no, the trade figures don't show that. You, you, now there is very little chance to deny it, that, that this has had a huge effect on the British economy. And it's only taken a year. Um, and we're looking like the sick man of Europe again, which we were before we joined the EU. That's a remarkable turnaround. And a great deal of it is down to Brexit. The red tape alone at the border, HMRC, His Majesty's Revenue and Customs, told the select committee years ago that's seven billion a year 
we know that big companies can afford this kind of thing. Small companies can't. Small companies are just stopped trading with the EU. Lots of EU companies, more EU companies have stopped trading with us than the other way around. And there's a good point for that. You know, British companies desperately need to sell into the EU because it's a huge market of three, four hundred million people. And, you know, a small German company will, might look at the new bother, red tape, controls, expense um, and angst of dealing with the UK now and say, the game's not worth the candle. We, we'll just sell somewhere else. So the, so the trade figures, if you compare, say, Germany um, with the UK, we've fallen out of the top 10 of German trading partners. We used to be steadily number five, and we've fallen five places in one year. That is disastrous, mm. utterly disastrous. And there's no sign of anybody in the government and precious few people in the Labour Party saying this is, a, you know, this is the, the warning sign that everything is going wrong, that it's a disaster. We've got to do something about it. No, they just deny it. They just, they just say, oh, it's not a bother. We've got a new trade deal with Japan or New Zealand, and this is going to make up for it. It won't, and it can't. And it's all the chickens are coming home to roost. Yes, I mean, the, the new trade deals with Australia and New Zealand were, I mean, they were done by Liz Truss, weren't they? On, mm. She managed to fit them in, in between photo opportunities, which were very, very nice of her. Um, but they were hailed as, as, you know, a Brexit freedom, a Brexit win. They, they turned out not to be a Brexit win. Uh, why, why is that? Well, it, it, um, it wasn't until George Eustace lost his job um, yeah. under Liz Truss, I believe, when she was Prime Minister, uh, that he, and he, where was he working at the time? The Department of Business, I think, basically said um, the, the Cabinet were told these were terrible trade deals, but they voted them through anyway because they wanted to be able to sell it as a, a Brexit success. And he said, actually, they're terrible trade deals. I mean, they're just not very good at all. Um, we, we knew that anyway, because um, kind of New Zealand TV ran reports about how British farmers were pulling their hair out and they couldn't believe how stupid the British had been in negotiations. It now turns out that Liz Trust basically went to Australian negotiators and said, um, we really want this deal by G7. What do you want? Which is just a suicidal way of negotiating. I mean, you, you're just cutting off your own nose to spite your face. You're desperately trying to get a headline and you don't care what the long term consequences are. And the long term consequences are that many, many British farmers will just be priced out of the market. Once unlimited amounts of Australian mutton and lamb and beef and milk and cheese and everything else arrive, uh, there's no way that the vast majority of British farmers can compete with what is a continent which is one of the largest food exporters in the world and one of the cheapest producers of food in the world. They're just not going to be able to compete. And there's no, up, there's no other upside. These aren't vastly industrialised nations that are actually gagging for British products or British services. And we can't sell them food because they export, you know, 99 times more food than they actually consume locally. They're massive food exporters. So it would be like shipping coals to Newcastle. And they're on the other side of the world. Hmm. So it, it just doesn't work. I mean, the, the Conservative Party has just been told off, I think, for, for um, uh, you know, putting out a press release saying the, there's been £800 billion worth of new trade deals um, since Brexit. Well, the first one, the, the biggest one, was with the EU, and it's considerably worse than the one we used to have. The vast majority of the others were just rollovers, so no difference at all from the ones we had with the EU. The ones with Australia and New Zealand have almost un, are so small that the, the benefits are almost unmeasurable for the whole economy. And the only one which is, was a slight improvement on the EU one was the one with Japan. And strangely enough, our trade with Japan has got worse since that trade deal 
was signed. And I was speaking to a Japanese uh, expert in the UK about this. And she basically said, uh, Japanese companies used to base themselves in the UK and trade across Europe. Um, so all the profits came back to the UK headquarters and then were exported, uh, were, were repatriated to Japan. And now they've all left the UK because we've left the single market. So our trade with Japan has declined because all the money that used to pass from Europe through to Japan has disappeared. Um, so there isn't any upside in any of these trade deals and the, the, the considerable downside in the one with the EU, our largest trading partner by far. And one of the things that you, you mentioned there and that continues to bemuse me, although I'm not sure bemuse is, is the right word because we did say this would happen all along, uh, but it doesn't really give me any great pleasure to, to see it happening, is that some of the people who were keenest on Brexit, farmers, the fishing industry, uh, and, and in Northern Ireland, the trade unionists are continuing to take the, the hits from Brexit, the Brexit that they voted for. Yes, um, they, they were betrayed. It's, it's perfectly, you know, um, farmers voted for, for Brexit in about the same numbers as everyone else even though they were receiving, you know, tens of thousands of pounds a year from the EU to run their farms. And then they were promised more money for uh, their farms if we left, and they haven't got more money. And they were promised that small farmers would benefit and small farmers are going to be worse off. Mm. And then the fishing industry was promised complete control of our fishing waters. That hasn't happened. And the same access to Norwegian and Icelandic and um, far northern fishing waters, and those have been decimated because we're a very weak negotiator now because we don't have anything to offer these people that they want, whereas the EU did. So um, they've been totally shafted and deep sea long distance fishing boats are being scrapped. Uh, fish processing is, is moving elsewhere. Uh, this is very similar to what happens in Norway, that um, mm. they land a lot of fish and they, they ship it straight to the EU because it's it's easier to have it processed in the EU where there are no tariffs on processed food than to process it in Norway and then pay the tariffs. So they 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 have a large fishing industry, but not a very large fish processing industry as a result. And that looks like it's beginning to happen in the UK, that we will ship um, just plain fish and shellfish to the EU and they'll process it there. And it and but the trouble is the industry just didn't you know didn't spend any time looking at what was really happening. Most of the fish that is landed in, in Britain is exported, most of that to the EU, because we don't eat hake and we don't eat uh, langoustine very much, or we don't eat uh, razor clams, uh, or we don't eat um, cockles or mussels and everything. Whereas in Italy and Spain and France, they love these things. Um, what we eat is cod mm. uh, and uh, haddock, and most of that comes from outside our fishing waters. So basically, we are importing things like tuna and salmon and cod and, and haddock, um, and we are exporting the stuff we catch here. So it's a large international trade. And putting barriers and problems in its way uh, causes problems for the industry and makes it much more expensive and less profitable uh, and will cost jobs as well. So uh, they were just betrayed. They were stupid enough to lend the be the poster boys of Brexit farmers with trailers with, you know, Nigel Farage's face on them on, on all the motorways and fishing boats with the Union Jack sailing up the Thames, all that stuff. The second it was over, that was it. You're dead to us. We don't care. Yes. And in Northern Ireland, I mean, the unionists, well, they kept Theresa May's government afloat and then they sank Theresa May, didn't they, when she yeah. she uh, she offered them a, a 
a Brexit deal that was uh, not hard enough for some of those unionists. I mean, the effects, the, the effect, they were promised no border down the Irish Sea, weren't they? And they got a border down the Irish Sea. Yeah, it is quite easy with the D- DUP to think, well, you know, you asked for this and now you're complaining, you know, you, you really were stupid. Um, the trouble is that, you know, there are there are ultras in both sides of the Northern Ireland who are perfectly willing to use this to stoke up violence yes. and trouble. Um, but the DUP have been remarkably dumb. Um, I mean, they let's not forget, they supported Theresa May. Um, they supported Brexit, then they supported Theresa May, but only because we gave them a billion pounds in um, yes. infrastructure investment. I mean, frankly, that was corruption, really, I think, isn't it? I, I can't, you know, giving the party a billion pounds to support you uh, doesn't look very, very uh, honest and decent. And uh, and then uh, they backed Boris Johnson, um, who did put a border down the Irish Sea and then went to Northern Ireland and was videoed lying about it, saying there won't be a single piece of red. If anyone phones you up and says you need to form, fill a form in, phone me and I'll tell you to throw it in the waste paper basket. And then spent millions building the offices and the inspection facilities to process that red tape. Um, and uh, and then said, oh, it's nothing to me to do with me. Um, I didn't read the details or I didn't know this would happen. When the Treasury's own paper on the effects of the Northern Ireland Protocol spe- spelt out in black and white, this will cost this much. There will be this many tests and there will be this amount of red tape and it will mean this and this. It was it was black and white. And either they didn't even bother reading it or they just lied straight out about it. There is no other option. They're either lazy or liars. And the consequences, you know, have Stormont suspended because the DUP is um, fighting in the last ditch about this when nobody else is. So they seem almost certain to lose. Um, And the government tries to pass the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which will basically break international law and tear up the treaty that it... Uh, not only negotiated, but came up with a solution. It was Boris Johnson's solution was to put the border down the RSC. It was his idea. He negotiated it. He agreed it. He got it through Parliament. He won an election on it. And now they want to tear it up. Uh, the latest news seems to be that there's, there's going to be a compromise, which basically means Britain is going to have to back down. Hmm. Um, because if they didn't and tore up the treaty, they'd start a trade war with the EU uh, in the middle of a recession. Um, and if you think our trade is with the EU is getting worse now, you wait till the trade war starts. You wait until the French customs officials make you tick every box again and start putting tariffs on goods or sending them back because the, the paperwork isn't perfect. It would be an utter, utter disaster. And uh, even this government knows that. Um, but funnily enough, through all this, what you haven't yet heard from ministers is this kind of, oh, yeah, well, we may have got it wrong. They just won't ever, I don't think, admit that anything is really going wrong Hmm. when the government's running out of money. And we know that Brexit has cost the economy four or five percent growth. Well, that's another 40, 50 billion pounds the government would have had. Um, How much austerity, how much, um, how many tax rises, how much more money from the NHS could we have got for that 50 billion rather than putting up taxes or borrowing more? Uh, and yet nobody's talking about it. It's the elephant in the room. Now, there was an attempt to to do something radical, wasn't there, when Boris Johnson was was gratefully removed from office. Um, and, and and really, you know, I don't think this, this is said enough that the, the quasi-quartain Liz Truss budget was, was a, 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 the Brexit ultra mini budget, wasn't it? It was everything that 
that think tanks, that Brexiteers had said for years, the Brexit newspapers had, had wanted for years. And, and I mean, that's that cost us, uh, that's put us back by by another year, hasn't it, or more? Oh, it's put, it's put us back much more than that, yes. It was, it was, it was their dream. It was Singapore on Thames. It was tax rises for the poor, massive tax cuts for everybody else. N- nobody in that mini budget benefited unless they earned more than £150,000. And the money that was used to benefit those people who earned over £150,000 was borrowed um, for, I mean, we're talking 30, 40 billion pounds. And it was just the straw that broke the camel's back. So the, the whole thing, therefore, imploded within a week because the markets just weren't willing to lend money at the same rates that they used to be. The cost of borrowing for everybody has gone up uh, and is staying higher than it would have been. Um, and then you had Jeremy Hunt brought in to try and sort things out. And basically, he's putting up taxes every year for the next four years or five years. We're going to have a, a huge recession. And when we come out of it, growth is going to be anemic. So the not only is um, he increasing taxes, uh, he's also desperately trying to cut spending. Um, and the percentage of GDP that we spend in taxation is going to keep on rising. And still, at the end of that, we'll be borrowing vast amounts of money. So we are basically um, taxing more, desperately trying to spend less, and still having to borrow more for years and years and years to come. It wasn't all the fault of um, Kwasi Kwarteng and, and Liz Truss, but a lot of it was. Um, and and But basically, actually, I think it was uh, quite cathartic because they were acting as though Brexit was a huge success. and giving money to billionaires would automatically increase growth, which is just some right-wing nutters fantasy. Um, And the fact that it died so quickly is actually quite good, because if it had been allowed to drag on, we'd have been in an even worse position in a year or two years' time when there was no more growth and we were still borrowing money to throw at millionaires. So I suppose it's quite good that it only lasted a week. But even so, you still have these right-wing loons and commentators saying, oh, it wasn't tried properly and it was a... It was a Remainer betrayal or something like, you know, the idea that the City of London is full of um, starry-eyed Remainers who personally um, undermined the, the government and its finances is a joke. They, you know, they just took one look at it and said, this is rubbish. You know, this is just fantasy. No serious government will do this. We're not going to lend them any more money. Hmm. And, and, and they were destroyed, quite rightly. It was utterly mad. Um, and with it, of course, goes much of the rationale for Brexit, which was, you know, to um, reduce all regulations and rules and laws and destroy the unions and allow wages to be driven down and become Singapore on Thames and just attract billionaires um, and let trickle down economics mean that, you know, they can employ some servants and um, some more cleaners and, and we'll all tug our forelocks and be grateful for it. I mean, that was basically their economic policy, and it died in a week, thank God. Uh, I mean, we've not even touched on stuff like the car industry. We've not touched on uh, some of manufacturing, the city, the the cash cow. Uh, but, I mean, there's a there seems to be a thought among the hardcore Brexiteers, the Brexit true believers, that Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt are, are in some way betraying this, this legacy is there any 
Is there any sort of, and, and Sunak does continue to talk tough about the, the benefits of Brexit. He says that there are loads they just haven't been unlocked yet. Uh, and mm. Kevin Badenoch today saying that sort of deadlines for, for Brexit things to, to happen, positive things to happen are unhelpful. Um, is there any evidence that Rishi Sunak is, is softer on Brexit than Johnson or Truss were? No, not really. Um... There's a few things at the edges, like the Northern Ireland Protocol, where, you know, um, these ultras were perfectly willing to be marched off the cliff, break international law, become a pariah, just so that they say there was not any single part of Britain that had anything to do with the European Court of Justice or something, which is just a mad idea of sovereignty. But, you know, but he's basically at their beck and call still. So when he, you know, suggests things like, well, we might want to develop a better relationship with the EU in the future, which is hardly a controversial claim. It's all, oh, this this is the first sign that, you know, of reversal, of betrayal, of these these ultras cannot see anything, but um we must have utterly nothing to do with the EU in any way, shape or form. And anyone who suggests anything commonsensical or in our best interests, which involves that, is some kind of traitor. Uh, and he did. He tried to do that recently, and he was absolutely. He was forced to deny it. It was in the papers. You know, we're going to have a better relationship with the EU, um, and uh, everyone said, "Oh, maybe, maybe he means like Switzerland." You know, have a kind of Swiss trading, and everyone went, "No, we can't do that. We can't be anything like Switzerland. No, no we, that's a disaster. That's a betrayal." When, frankly, during the years before the referendum and the run-up to the referendum, they thought the Swiss deal was okay, but we'd be better off as Norway. Um, so they've just they've just gone from we could have a sensible balanced relationship with the EU to we must have nothing to do with them and anyone who suggests we should have anything to do with them as a traitor and there's nothing he can do about it. I, you know, everyone is criticising Chris um, um, uh, uh, God, what's his name? Starmer for, um, for 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 not going far enough and saying you know we need to join the customs union and the single market. We can't really do that, um, but I don't believe that he's he's not thinking. Right. If we do get into power, we can at least go to Brussels and start asking for some sensible things and some co- cooperation and say we're going to follow the treaties we've signed and we're going to agree with international law. Can we please have a bit of a, you know, a bit of a uh, cooperation on this, like Horizon, for instance, which is completely blocked because of the Northern Ireland Protocol or the data data transfer details or equivalents for the city or the recognition of professional qualifications, which is also um, completely in the doldrums. There's supposed to be talks going on about that. And the EU has basically said, until you stick by your word over Northern Ireland, we're not discussing any of these things. And British universities, I mean, I know my old university very well because I um, um, I do some uh, work with them and I'm a, member, I'm a fellow of the university. Well, university is just pulling their hair out about this, that they can't, they can't get ha- hands on this horizon money. They can't no one will do a deal with them in any other European country or university or ac- academic will be seen cooperating with them because the EU has basically said, we're not going to give you any money if you try and in- include a British university. That alone is doing more damage to the British economy than the Northern Ireland Protocol does to Northern Ireland or the fishing industry has, you know, destruction of the fishing industry has done. The universities are, are, are you know, basically one of the jewels in the British crown when it comes to economic policy. And they're being utterly stymied by this. Um, and then, you know, the other side of that is that it, because immigration hasn't come down as was promised by the Brexiteers, 
They're now talking about limiting the number of foreign students in universities in an attempt to bring the immigration figures down. Well, if you want to bring the immigration figures down, just stop counting foreign students as immigrants because they go home after three years. It's yeah. not that difficult. No, but you know, the Tory party solution is to stop universities taking foreign students when the foreign students are used to subsidise British students and many universities would go bust if they didn't have any. So uh, this is just, it's just self-defeating fantasy uh, economics and politics uh, in which uh, any, anything is worth it so long as it means we have nothing to do with the EU. And, and yet we see the economic and political and scientific consequences around us all the time. The government is running out of money. Um, it would have a lot more money if we hadn't left. It, ha it would have about um, four or five percent more money if we hadn't left, because that's the damage that has been done to the economy. It's very simple, but no one will see it. Yes, and I wanted to, to, to end with that, really, John C., because, you know, the word Brexit murder, which is a, something that Neil Kinnock has coined, that does feature in your piece, it's, it, and it is a good description of the code of silence which seems to exist uh, on this when it comes to Brexit damage. Is it really sustainable in, in 2023 when we look at everything that's ahead, that we will end, we will be here in a, in a year's time saying that once again, the government and the opposition failed to say these things are going wrong because of Brexit? Um, I, yeah, I can't see it lasting forever. Um, I, I really can't. Um, not, not least because so many of the Brexit supporters in the electric, uh, electorate are very old. And uh, they are rather sadly dying out. Um, and the young people are immensely pro-European and pro-EU, and they're, they're starting to vote. So eventually, I mean, there have been some cynical people saying that Labour will get in, the Tories will, um, you know, re-establish themselves as a pro-EU market and win the next election after that on rejoining the EU. Mm. I don't think it's going to be quite that quick. And considering who's taken over the Tory party, I don't see that, that really happening uh, any time within the next 20 or 30 years. But it is perfectly possible for the Lib Dems and the SNP and Labour, especially once they've basically one or all of them have got into power, to turn around and say, we've looked at the books and you've been lied to. Um, we've seen the details of the you know, internal treasury documents and the business department and the foreign office. And, you know, and my God, are we in a mess? And it's because of Brexit. And then I think that would be the kind of breaking of that code of silence that, you know, no one can blame Brexit because there must be. I mean, I've been saying this for ages in my blog that there must be treasury calculations of how much this is costing, how much they are losing in tax, um, how much trade uh, is being damaged. And the knock on effects of that are things like lack of inward investment. And foreign companies are the ones that invest the most and invest in the latest technology and the, bring lots of skills and productivity gains and all kinds of things to the UK. And so the economic damage isn't just the lost trade, it's the lost investment, the lost opportunities, the lost foreign companies who bring their brightest and their best here. It just ripples through the economy. I can't believe the Treasury and Bayes and lots of other departments haven't actually written things for their ministers that say this is how much it's costing us this is the damage it is doing it's not just trade it's investment it's universities it's research it's development it's our international reputation it's 
it that must be there and when a new government gets in they have the perfect opportunity to turn around and say all this was known and they did nothing about it and i think that might be what will change the tide that everyone will suddenly wake up and say oh well, they didn't tell us this they must have been lying to us all the time about it and look we have the data and we have the research and we have the the analysis by their own departments which told them at the time what was really going on uh, and i think that might be the turning point well let's look forward to that turning point and uh, and for the last time this year let's say thank you very much to john t bloom uh to read john t on brexit and murder and a year in brexit pick up the latest issue of the new european all because it's cold out there you can subscribe for two pounds a week and get our award-winning newspaper delivered to your door plus digital access to all of Chauncey's articles for us. You can do that by subscribing at the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Joining me now for the Hall of Shame, where we enshrine malignant ministers, bogus backbenchers and poisonous pundits are Eleanor Longman-Rood and Matt Withers. Ellie, Matt, welcome back. Hello. Hello. Before we launch into another Hall of Shame, a couple of other things to pick up. First of all, the New Europeans print edition this week has got a very striking cover. Uh, it's a picture of Harry and Meghan uh, with the words absolutely nothing about these two inside. I don't think that stops us from a brief discussion about them on this podcast, though. Ellie, you're our TV expert. Are you watching this Netflix uh, stuff? What have you learned from it so far? I'm now going to have to really disappoint you, as said TV expert, um, and admit that I haven't been watching it. Um, I've, I've fallen short. And I have to admit, it's something that just has not a lot of appeal to me. Um, I would even go as to say I find the little the whole thing just a little bit tone deaf, considering, to be honest, the other, you know, everything else that's going on, you know, just yesterday talking about safe routes for asylum seekers and what I know we're coming on to, the, the corruption scandal allegations in, in European Parliament. Um, having said that, what have we learned so far? In the first instalment, we sort of met, uh, learnt that they met over Instagram. Um, they spoke about the reason why they wanted to do this this documentary and the and the series in general, which I think is um, I think it's a clip that's actually in the trailer itself for it. You know, Megan saying people, you know, everyone's written books about us telling our story, so doesn't it make more sense to to hear it from us? Um, we learned that I believe they met twice in person before the trip to Botswana, giving, you know, false hope to young daters everywhere, which is stuff that we really need. Um, and in this latest installment, I think we're going to hear about a sort of, as or you know, if you've seen it, a screaming match between between Harry and Prince William when Harry, you know, unveiled and went to speak to him about his plans for for the two of them and for moving abroad. Um, more about Meghan's relationship with the Queen. Uh, and also, I believe she's going to speak about her miscarriage, which I know she's written about in the past and obviously is a very difficult thing to to talk about. Um, but no, I have, you know, you mentioned a brief discussion and, you know, I it, I have fallen short of my duties and haven't haven't really been watching it um, or not haven't really haven't been watching it at all. You're, you're not only our designated TV person, you're also our, our designated young person, as we, as we often mention on this. I mean, what do you... What do you make of, the, of of them? Do you do you like them? Do people of, of your age identify them with them more than older people do? Do you think, or, or, or what? I think so. I think um, my view on it is, I do think there is a lot of um, 
legitimacy in the fact that, you know, how Meghan was treated by the media. All you have to do is look at the sort of headlines side by side and the front covers side by side. In, I think there was one about, you know, Meghan does something with avocado, you know, um, avocados and she's, you know, destroying the planet because she ate an avocado and something like Kate has a lovely brunch or something like that. Or why is Meghan holding her... Um, her baby bump what's she hiding and then the next one when it's comparison to Kate is Kate lovingly cradles herself you know she's glowing in this pregnancy so she was treated differently I did um you know I was a fan from the start and I think there is a case that obviously the two have more relatability amongst my age group um I have to admit I and a lot of my friends now kind of feel the same as that have as the years have progressed I've kind of almost got a bit um a bit agnostic towards it if that's even the right word just I I think I've you know written here in my notes I've just really tapped out in the capacity for the saga when to be honest I just see that there's other things going on um we did watch I think to be fair it was lockdown so you know we were really you know reaching but we did watch um in our flat the interview last year that where they sat down and spoke with Oprah which I thought was quite um interesting and it seems from the segments and the, the clips I've seen of the one that's you know coming out at the moment it seems a quite a different tone in this one they're sort of really quite gunning for it now um out of interest did you guys watch either the one last year or, or the one that's coming out now no <laughs> no, absolutely, no absolutely not no, I, I I try to avoid it and somehow mm. end up taking in a certain amount by osmosis uh, which is inevitable when it's being analysed and dissected, even by what you deem the serious, respectable media. You know, the poor guy on the Today programme this morning forced to watch three episodes at the same time in order to provide almost real-time reactions to the so-called uh, revelations. But no, no, I've not been watching. Yes. I mean, it's it, it's something that I have got no real interest in. I've not watched an episode of The Crown, let alone an episode of of this. Um, you know, I, I think I find them as a couple. There's there's something nice about them. There's also something uh, and and innocent about them. There's also something calculated and preposterous about them, um, which negates some of the the very good points they make about a you know an institution which has not really treated them very well and. Uh, another institution, which is is the, the British press, which has treated them um, extremely badly because they refuse to pay uh, its game, play its games. But you know, when when um, I mean, I've been following the coverage today, and when Tyler Perry, who I I mean, he's another person that I know very little of. All I know of him is that he sometimes he dresses up as an old woman, and then he turned up in in Gone Girl as an attorney. Um, but he's he he's in it somehow, and then, I mean, there's a tr- tremendous text uh, that that uh, that Megan mentioned. This this I, this I really love this. Beyonce just texted. She wants me to feel safe and protected. She admires and respects my bravery and vulnerability, and thinks I was selected to break generational curses that need to be healed. I mean, that's first. I've never had a text like that from a friend. I, I mean, I, I you know, do you fancy a couple of pints on a a Saturday night and um, a curry afterwards, perhaps? But um, I don't think I've ever had that. But then I've never had a text from Beyonce. You know, maybe uh, maybe she she'd put that on the end. Um, do you think that it, will it change perceptions of, of these two in any way, Ellie, or will it just the people who, who like them will like them more, and the people who hate them will hate them more? 
I don't think it's going to do anything in their favor, to be honest. Um, from the discussions I've been having, either people are, um, you know, not not really watching it, not really fast. Um, the sort of ship has sailed, kind of, in terms of changing minds, and even some people are just not really bothering to sit down and watch it. It's you mentioned the Crown. It's interesting, sort of, you know, coming out. I I think believe it's been a month or so since the latest installment of the Crown's come out, and there's been a lot of you know, backfire about the latest series of The Crown, about how that was, you know, everything with Charles and Diana and how then Camilla and and how that's been portrayed. So it is interesting, the, you know, coming out so close together. Um, I don't think it's really going to change any minds. Um, and I just think it's going to backfire. I think it's been, you mentioned the word calculated as well. That's how the clips I've seen, it seems a bit calculated as well. And I just also think there's, a certain tone of that people have just reached full capacity for it um and for me I think some I used to see it was there a bit of naivety with the whole thing but now I just think it's getting a little bit um I don't want to use the word malicious but I just don't really I'm not really for it anymore I really have to admit well I'd just like to see him get on with something else now you know I yeah mean, exactly let, let's let's you know let's start let's do do the charity stuff which they are doing you know I know they were at a charity event the other night and let's do more of that and try and do something do try and do something else um let's go back to our normal stock in stock in trade then Johnny Bloom just on there talking about the damage from a year of Brexit but also talking about this Qatar gate scandal within the EU that, that's broken this week. Um, Ellie, what's, what's, what are your thoughts on this? What, what's kind of stood out for you and how, how seriously should we be taking this? Yeah, I mean, the details really are staggering. Um, and I know, you know, if we've been speaking about this week, 16 raids at sites across Brussels, um, you know, uncovering 600,000 euros in cash. The, the picture that the Belgian police posted, it was... Uh, what 1.5 million euros in cash recovered from raids between Friday and Monday, uh, which included a suitcase overflowing with sort of 50 and 100 euro banknotes, another two briefcases neatly stacked with 50 euro notes. Um, yeah, it's just quite, especially, you know, seeing the pictures of that. It is, you know, it should be treated seriously. And, and I think it is. Um, for me, I think there's two questions or two sort of issues emerging from this is, one, as I think has been discussed, how how deep does it go? Is it a case of a few bad apples, which is a phrase I really do hate. <laughs> um, but, you know, it does kind of fit and sum up stuff. But I hate it, especially when it was thrown around when discussing issues around, you know, the Met and and everything when um, it was around the time of Cressida Dick stepping down. But anyway, is it a case of a few bad apples or is it, you know, a, a whole rotten rotten barrel? The further we get into it, it seems like it's a lot more than a few a few bad apples. Um and then also there's the issue of how it's going to be used by Eurosceptics and how it's going to be jumped upon in terms of a rhetoric and a narrative aside from the actual details. And I think, you know, we know it will be um, as it used as a chance to say, look, we aren't you glad we've left the EU? Look what's happening. Wasn't the Brexit vote right? Which incidentally comes at a time when Brexit is going shockingly and more and more people are sort of coming around to that as John T. Bloom's written this week and even though more minds are being changed and more and more you know facts are coming out there's a, still a lot of um a conspiracy to not talk about it and this will just play completely in into that um but I really do agree in terms of the institution element I really do agree with what what Jay's written about it on the site today that you know yes corruption has been found within the European European Union European Parliament and yes individuals within institutions whatever institutions they may be can be corrupted 
Um, but that doesn't, you know, we don't need to go too far with that. X doesn't mean, you know, X, okay, corruption found doesn't mean to go to Y, okay, well, this is why it's completely inherently awful, go as far as abolishment, you know, this is means it's absolutely can never do any good ever again. You know, if we abolished, as he writes, if we abolished every single institution that presented as corrupt, there essentially wouldn't really be any left. Um, currently, you know, if we look within domestically in our own system, the allegations against Michelle Moe claim, you know, claiming that she made 29 million out of, out of PPE deals. And I'm not saying that justifies it, you know, corruption in one country, corruption somewhere else means that corruption everywhere is okay. But just to offer some level of comparison, um, to save the reputation, it needed to be dealt with with speed and efficiency, which I think it has. Um, yeah. And so that's that's where we can go from. But I don't, I worry, I don't like this idea that it is going to be jumped on to sort of, you know, in terms of like an issue of rejoining um, argument, it's going to sort of be be used against that. Do you, does that worry you, Matt? Do you, do you think that this might, I mean, Brexit has never been less popular, has it? Do you, do you think that this might change that in any way? Um, well, it's too early to see in the figures. Um, some 65% of voters think Brexit was going badly and only 21% said it's going well in the latest opinion survey. And a polar polls analysis shows support for rejoining the EU at 57% and staying out at 43% if another referendum were held now. Uh, but obviously those polls were taken before the recent European Parliament revelations. Um, I, I suspect there won't be an impact. Um, firstly, it hasn't had a great deal of coverage um, in the mainstream UK media. Yes, it's in the broadsheets, but I doubt it's made Magic FM's top of the hour bulletins. And I suspect if you were polling which stories have really impinged on the public this week, this scandal will come some way below uh, Harry and Meghan, for example. Um, and secondly, I, I agree with um, a lot of what Ellie said there. I'm not sure the alleged bad behaviour of some MEPs, very serious as that behaviour might be, is enough to damage faith or belief in the wider institutions of the EU. And since the 2019 general election, for example, have already been five by-elections sparked by the bad behaviour of the previous MP, but that hasn't tended to cause questioning the entire institution. Actually, I think were um, Brexit conservative to say that this Parliament, the European Parliament scandal shows why we were right not to be in the EU, then the SNP could make a case that the amount of MPs who've had to step down in the past three years is a valid reason for Scotland not to want to be um, represented at Westminster anymore. You know, you could make that argument. Um, and our domestic parliamentarians haven't been immune to taking the Qatar Real, at least in terms of hospitality. Politico reported this week that the Qatari government spent more than £260,000 on hospitality, travel and gifts for 36 MPs over the past 14 months alone. Uh, one of them, though, um, the Conservative MP Jackie Doyle-Price did say it is precisely to challenge them on their human rights record that we go on these trips, uh, although it's not clear how much sway the Furuk MP and junior industry minister for the entirety of the Liz Truss administration has with the House of Varney. Uh, so, no, I don't. <laughs> I, what I'm saying is I don't think it will have an impact on how people feel. No. Uh, well, she's doing a bit, isn't she? Um, she isn't in the Hall of Shame. There are some some people in the Hall of Shame, as there always are. Uh, and let's start, as we always do, with Anne Whittacombe in the Daily Express. And normally, I describe Anne Whittacombe's as the world's worst newspaper column in the world's worst newspaper. But I want to give credit where it's due this week. 
Daily Express slavish in its defence of Brexit, slavish in its defence of the government uh, normally. But on Thursday morning, its front page headline was this. Give nurses a deal and stop this madness, which is, I mean, that is quite remarkable. Ellie, if the Daily Express continues in this truth-telling vein, what, what headlines are you looking forward to reading on its front page next? Well, before I say, it, I have to say I really um, enjoyed Mitch's our very own Mitch Ben's take on this, where he sort of you know shared that that front page that you basically just said and said you know who and what and why has happened to the Daily Express and it's everything okay with the world and I'm very confused. Um, but no, Steve, I think we could maybe even see some some headlines that you might enjoy, something like columnist Anne Widdicombe opens doors to asylum seekers or even columnist Anne Widdicombe gives up column something like that maybe uh, Matt any any thoughts about future Daily Express headlines yeah well the Express's headline on nurses isn't that unconventional given their predominantly non-agenarian readership probably see more of nurses than yes. most um, so I've got a few headlines which might not sit so well with them I'm thinking maybe 5 p.m is too early for dinner or um, we tell BBC acts country file, um, or perhaps just a simple it's time to stop talking about the good old days. <laughs> yes, all of those would work. I, I mean, I would like to see help everything we've been telling you has been wrong uh, on the front page of the Daily Express. My real suggestion, though, is that if the Daily Express really does uh, want to have a change of heart, it might want to stop looking at the, about the front page and start thinking about its letters page. Um, because here are two from the last week. These are both in praise. These are genuine letters that have appeared on the letters page of the Daily Express since Anne Widdicombe wrote about the Lady Susan Hussey uh, affair. She was the, the lady-in-waiting who, who made uh, racist remarks to a, a visitor to Buckingham Palace. Uh, this one is from Graham Mills of Southampton. Thank God for Anne Widdicombe expressing the most sensible comments on the fuss over Lady Susan Hussey. It seems that people, especially older people, have to think very carefully nowadays when speaking in case there's a member of the Snowflake Brigade listening. Uh, and then Paul Brambles from Blackpool Lanks writes, well done Daily Express for having such brilliant writers in your paper. Anne Widdicombe writes about the Lady Susan Hussey nonsense and has it perfectly correct. I can't believe how many black privileged people keep telling us how bad their life has been. That's a, a letter that was actually printed um, in a national newspaper. I can't believe how many black privileged people keep telling us how bad their life has been. Um, once again, uh, thank you to the letter writers of the Daily Express for, for uh, cursing victims of racism, for daring to complain about racism and, and, um, and curse them again for tricking older people into saying racist things in the earshot of others. It's good to see blame being apportioned correctly. Um, one more thing about Anne Widdicombe, because that is quite a lot about Anne Widdicombe, and it's quite enough about Anne Widdicombe. Anne Widdicombe will shortly be appearing on a TV show which finally befits her status uh, as a columnist. It is Channel 5's The Real Marigold B&B, which is being set in Pristatin, uh, in a B&B &B in Pristatin. Anne is going to be sharing... Uh, a room with Giles Brandreth on that reality show. Giles Brandreth, interestingly, once described Anne Widdicombe as a cross between Danny DeVito and Margaret Rutherford. Um, to be honest with you, I would rather 
watch Meghan and Harry uh, in a B&B reality show in, set in Prestatyn, but I guess uh, we've got that to look forward to in a couple of years. Um, when it comes to the Hall of Shame, Eleanor Longman-Rood, who are your suggestions for this week? Who will I be putting in there? So first up for me in the Hall of Shame, and I have to admit, I'm not actually sure if he has been it before, um, but it's the Labour MP Clive Lewis. Uh, yesterday on BBC Politics Live, he joined a panel uh, discussing, among other things, the government's plan to house asylum seekers in disused holiday parks, uh, at which point he said, if you put a group of people concentrated into a camp, as you did in South Africa in the Boer War, it is what you call a concentration camp. Uh, essentially, they're comparing the government's plans to move migrants to holiday camps akin to setting up concentration camps. He kept saying during this during this discussion, you know, let's be clear, let's be clear. And I know this is usually a place for lightheartedness in, in the podcast, but indeed, let's be clear, Clive Lewis, that comparison was grossly inappropriate and grossly offensive. Um, and then also joining him for me is Nadim Zahawe. Uh, yesterday, The Guardian published a story under the headline, uh, Tories make billionaire ex-Mubarak minister senior treasurer, which pol uh, political editor Pippa Korea then tweeted out, saying that the Tories had appointed Egyptian-born billionaire and former minister under the Mubarak regime to be one of the senior fundraisers before the next election. To which Zahawe responded by saying, Egyptian-born proud British subject, fixed it for you, and then he signed it, from Iraqi-born proud British subject, sort of missing the point there a little bit. Uh, Korea then responds by saying, how about you fix the bit between where he served as a minister in the Mubarak government for three years? Could you fix that bit too? Uh, evidently not, as curiously, Zahawe then decided to slip away from that Twitter exchange. Shocking. Almost as shocking as the whiff of more corruption from the government. Amazing. And uh, Matt Withers, who are your entrants for the Hall of Shame this week? Well, first for me in the Hall of Shame is Daily Mail columnist Sarah Vine. Uh, she wrote in a column this week about how Britain is resembling the broken country of the 1970s when her parents were forced to flee to Italy in search of a better life. She writes, crippling strikes, threatened power shortages, economic stagnation, high taxation, inflation. To them, as a young couple with two small children, it all seemed inexorably bleak. OK, my dad had a job working for British Steel, but it fell to him and my mother that this country was going nowhere. Mum and dad were in their mid-twenties, and so they decided, in the way that only the young can, to leave. Within weeks, I was conversing fluently in Italian with my new friends and translating for my mother on shopping trips. So you'd expect Sarah Vine to have sympathy for those people forced to flee countries in the grip of a breakdown and go in search of a better life elsewhere. Uh, no. The Home Office has not only wasted millions paying the French to fail to stop the small boat crossings, but it's also splurging £6.8 million per day accompanying migrants in four-star hotels. It's simply not acceptable, she wrote last month in a column venerating Suella Braverman. What about those British citizens who've been priced out of the rental market, or whose mortgages have shot up, or who are fleeing domestic violence or battling ill health or dementia or disability? Why does it feel as if we are somehow always the last in line? Well, given her apparently fluent Italian, Sarah Vine will know what ipocrita means. <laughs> Am I... Other entrant this week is Adam Afrihi. Now, listeners with long memories will remember he was the Conservative MP dubbed the Tory Obama when, in 2013, friends of his were busily briefing the press. He was set to challenge David Cameron for the party leadership. The Mail on Sunday reported at the time, 
outspoken Tory MP Mark Field, a key ally of Mr Free, last night confirmed he discussed Mr Free with other Tory MPs, praised his compelling leadership credentials and said it was difficult to see how the Tories could win the 2015 election. What happened next? The Tories won the 2015 election. Mr Afree has never held even the most junior of ministerial posts. This summer he announced he was stepping down as an MP. And this week he was declared bankrupt over debts of £1.7 million. Unlike the actual Obama, the Tory Obama is highly unlikely to get a $65 million advance to write his autobiography to pay it off. Uh, he could do with it, though, couldn't he? Um, uh, I've got a couple more for the Hall of Shame. Jonathan Gullis is in the Hall of Shame, um, a name that will send a shiver down the spine of many listeners. Uh, Jonathan Gullis, uh, Brexit EMP for Stoke-on-Trent North, he announced a private member's bill, which would have made it legal under British law to break international law, a, a legal law-breaking uh, bill. Uh, it would have made it legal to remove asylum seekers to Rwanda, regardless of any decision by an international court. Uh, Jonathan Gullis's bill was described as authoritarian and fascistic, and that was just by people who supported it. Um, sadly for uh, Jonathan Gullis, Boris Johnson who said he would support it, didn't bother to turn up to vote for it. Uh, who'd have thought Boris Johnson would break a promise? Only 69 people who did uh, uh, did vote for it, uh, but they included the following. Desmond Swain, Priti Patel, Esther McVeigh, Brandon Lewis, Michael Fabricant and Mark Francois. And what a guest list that would be for the real Marigold D&B in Prestatin uh, Series 2, maybe uh, to be held after the next election. Foremost in the Hall of Shame this week, though, and a subject that we uh, have returned to um, in this uh, podcast a couple of times now, uh, is Nigel Farage. He spent most of the week gloating uh, and posting videos about the Qatargate scandal, which has damaged the standing of the EU. I don't want to diminish the scandal in any way, but we have pointed out during this podcast uh, that wherever there's power and influence, there's also the capacity for lobbies, other interested parties to try and buy that power and influence. Westminster's had its share of scandals. Cash for questions was exactly this. Uh, and now, as mentioned, here, we've got a member of the House of Lords on a leave of absence over allegations that they made 29 million from a PPE contract that they themselves lobbied for. But why not? Why Nigel Farage? Well, it's a bit rich for Nigel Farage to be moaning about corruption in the EU because four years ago, Nigel Farage had £35,000 docked from his salary after an investigation found he'd misspent public funds intended for staffing his office. Uh, financial controllers found that Christopher Adams, hired by Farage to work in his European Parliament office as his assistant was not in fact working on European parliamentary matters. Uh, in the same scandal, one of Farage's chums, Roger Helmer, uh, who we used to talk about a lot in this podcast, he stood down uh, from Parliament altogether after he was asked to repay about £100,000 for alleged misuse of public funds. Um, I would really love Britain to be able to take a leading role in discovering how the Qatargate scandal happened and putting in places place measures to make sure that nothing like it ever happened again. But of course, we can't do that because we left the European Union behind. But surely there is some way uh, in politics to stop dodgy business people 
dodgy foreign powers, dodgy foreign money and dodgily funded think tanks from exercising a corrosive influence on our politics. That is one crusade I would like to see Nigel Farage using all his experience to take up. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey, Ellie Longman-Rood and Matt Withers. Thanks to John C. Bloom. Thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our producer, John Dakin. A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just a pound a week for digital, two pounds a week for print and digital. You get that special deal only by going to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode of this podcast, you can subscribe and you can give us nice ratings, lovely reviews, wherever your podcast provider allows. Well, it still exists. You can follow us on Twitter too, at The New European. Ellie, where can you uh, be followed on Twitter? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at elongman underscore rude. Uh, and Matt Withers? At Matt Withers, if you fancy it. Oh, blimey. Uh, and I, on Twitter, am Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Uh, you can join our Facebook readers group too, if you like. And so until the next time we meet, so long snowflakes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.